Hello, thought provokers, subversive readers, and well-read listeners. Welcome to Right Minded. I am Brooke Warner, and I am here with my very well-read co-host, Grant Faulkner. And Grant, reading goes hand-in-hand with writing in that they're flip sides of the same coin. And I read somewhere that reading is the inhale and writing is the exhale. And I love that sentiment so much because I'm a person who reads and writes, as are many of our listeners out there. Uh, But there are a lot of people who are avid readers who aren't writers, and there are writers who don't read all that much. Though I do have to say that I find it a little bit troubling when people tell me they're writing a book and they don't read. Uh, you know, and since we're doing an episode all about reading dangerously today, which comes from the title of our guest, Azar Nafisi's latest book, which is called Read Dangerously, I thought it'd be fun to take a walk down memory lane and maybe share a bit about some of our more dangerous reading experiences. And so I'm curious if you could tell us about a book or books that you read and you knew that what you were reading felt dangerous and that subversive kind of way that sometimes, uh, you know, reading will do expanding our minds a bit. Yeah, there's nothing better than a good, dangerous, subversive reading experience in my in my book. It's, they're, they're the most memorable. And, you know, I very fortunately and very accidentally uh, stumbled on that exact experience when I was pretty young. I was, I was just in ninth grade and I was writing a research paper on crime. And, you know, back then there was like card catalogs in the library. We had to just go look under like a topic like crime. And one book that was listed there was a book called Crime and Punishment, which I I knew nothing about. I didn't know the Russian writer whose name I couldn't pronounce who'd written it. But I picked it up and and read it, uh, not knowing it was a classic either. And my world has never been the same because it opened up such a dangerous terrain of the soul. And then I'll just give one more experience. Um, it should, should make a great list. This would be like an interesting like whole, whole timeline of your life through dangerous <laughs> reading experiences. But when I first moved to San Francisco in 1989, I encountered David Wanarovitz's Close to the Knives. I think I've mentioned this in the podcast before. But um, Wanarovitz, he was essentially this kind of punk rock artist, you know, an artist of the streets. And, and he wrote this memoir is both really poetic and beautiful, but also uh, confrontational and gritty and, and, and sometimes tough to read and more. And this was the, the AIDS era that he was writing in. And so the book carries a lot of uh, political weight as well, or just the, you know, the anger and vulnerability and confusion of the times. And it was dangerous because of the truth it risked, much like crime and punishment. And, you know, it really illustrates how the more daring the truth of a book, you know, the the more dangerous it is. Mm -hmm. So how about you, Brooke? Tell us some of your reading experiences. Yeah, it's funny because I thought you were going to talk about Ray Bradbury. Uh, I, I think he was the first author I read young, younger than ninth grade, you know, who I knew in my bones something was happening on the page because I read him like in late elementary school, probably, or early middle school, um, you know, and it was delightful in that way that you feel like you're being let in on something that maybe you're not supposed to know or supposed to see. And yet you check the book out in the library and your parents are encouraging you to read it. So that was just thrilling. It gave me that kind of subversive feeling and that his stories scared me a little, but in good ways. Uh, you know, and then I feel like I somehow managed to get through high school without a single dangerous read. I mean, there was a lot of stuff like Lord of the Flies, Romeo and Juliet, Plato, but nothing that moved me the way that once I got to college, Zora Neale Hurston and Toni Morrison and Margaret Atwood, all of whom have uh, chapters in Azar's new book. 
you know, and then I went on a classics kick for a while when I was a little older. I read Nabokov and Tolstoy, and I even read Anne Rand uh, because I was curious. And I, so I definitely know that tingling feeling of reading something that feels edgy, something that makes your soul say yes, or when you have that click of recognition that someone's speaking a truth, like you said, that needs to be said, there's an urgency, or the author is championing someone or maybe a whole group of people who needs to be championed, uh, or defending people who need to be defended. I, I just, you know, I'm very moved by that kind of fiction. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned Anne Rand Brooke because I read her as well uh, when I was in high school. And I didn't have enough context or really knowledge at the time to really place her within a conservative tradition. I actually read The Fountainhead and and loved the character Howard Rourke. He kind of represented a, a kind of punk rock character to me <laughs> because he was going against the grain. He was so independent. So he spoke to that kind of rebellious side of, of the teen years to me. But it was so it was surprising, kind of interesting to recontextualize her and that whole storyline through a lens of conservatism when I kind of found out more about her and, and the kind of politics that she was involved in. And and that made me think, you know, it really struck me in the introduction to Reading Dangerously uh, with Azar's book when she wrote, we in this country have lost the art of engaging with the opposition. This is where Reading Dangerously comes in. It teaches us how to deal with the enemy. We need to know not just how to deal with friends and allies, but with adversaries and enemies as well. So I mean, I'm curious when you mentioned that you were you were curious about Anne Rand. Did you read her with that in mind, you know, of, of reading an adversary? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll g give you a little bit of credit because I was not in high school. You know, when I read Anne Rand, I was probably in my late 20s. And so, yes, I did read her with that in mind. You know, I was leaning into my progressive politics at the time. And I knew that she had been in a big inspiration of Ronald Reagan's. And I was like, what is this novel, The Fountainhead, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so about free market capitalism. And, and then the Atlas Shrugged is, really about the morality of rational self-interest and see where that's gotten us, you know? And yeah, so I, I did want to see what she was all about. And I discovered that I did object to some of her ideas, but certainly not all of them. And, and today she's associated with libertarianism, but she had a very hands-off view about things that people should just be allowed to do their own thing. She was a non-interventionist, but you know, the problem is that in a society that privileges the dominant wealthy class, we can argue, and I would argue, that free markets are designed to privilege the wealthy. And uh, yeah, so I think she would definitely be an adversary to me if we were contemporaries. But having read her makes me able to articulate why. And that's the thing that I was thinking of when I was reading Azar's book. You know, it's disturbing even though I'm totally guilty of this, and I think we all are, how much we take issue with others on points that we don't really get to the bottom of, <laughs> you know, we don't totally understand, and we're all up in arms about stuff. Um, you know, and the problem, of course, is that we've had this breakdown in civil discourse in recent years that makes it almost intolerable to read people with whom we disagree. And Azar is saying, you know, that this is the root of the problem. And I totally agree with that, but I don't see how fixable it is because we're so polarized. Like reading Anne Rand's fiction is hardly comparable to reading the nonfiction works of people like Josh Hawley or Mitch McConnell or Ted Cruz, you know, like, I don't think I could get through some of those books at this stage of my life. Yeah, I mean, I, t I totally agree. And I think it's, it, it is one thing to deal with thoughts and points of view that confront your own on a thoughtful level. And I'd actually put Ayn Rand in that camp. Um, and it's another thing to deal with points of view that aren't 
counter arguments, but more, I don't know, twisted and manipulative power plays for lack of a better way to put it. Um, I actually love reading columnists or adversaries who have different politics than me because, you know, they help me better define and deepen my thought. And, and who knows, maybe they'll even, you know, if they're truly thoughtful, you know, uh, and write well, they might even convince me of something new and different, but I, I don't think we're exactly living in a world of thoughtful political exchange at the moment, or at least through, through most people who are out there. So like you, I'm not sure that it benefits me to watch an evening of Fox news or read, uh, Josh Hawley's latest. <laughs> yeah, my gosh. Uh, well, and I want to remind readers that Azar Nafisi wrote the incredible book, Reading Lolita in Tehran. I read that book, I think, in like 2006 or 2007. It really made a big impact on me. Azar is a very brave woman. And that book is all about how she was expelled from teaching at the University of Tehran for refusing to wear the veil. Uh, but largely it focuses on her book club, which consisted of female students who met weekly to discuss works of uh, Western literature. And so... Lolita, of course, is a very controversial book, and Nabokov is a controversial author. And since we're in this era of canceling, I just wanted to share an experience I had recently that led me to kind of sympathize, I guess, with my would-be adversaries, because we at She Writes Press had a sensitivity reader on one of our books, um, and she suggested that we remove a Nabokov quote, and her note said, he's a known pornographer. Hmm. I bristled at the comment, you know, not because Nabokov isn't problematic as a human being and an artist, but because of this impulse that we see in this culture right now that we're in, and especially among progressives on points like this, which is just to erase people altogether based on things that are not black and white. And obviously, this is a very complicated topic, but I do mention this because Azar is saying we have to engage, right? And it's not about erasure. It's not about canceling. It's really about the free exchange of ideas that will set us free. And so I do really believe that in theory, but in practice, I know it's so much more difficult. We did leave the Nabokov quote in, uh, and it's also really hard to engage in free exchange when one person thinks another is intolerant and the other sees the other as destroying their culture. And that's kind of where we're at right now. Yeah, that's so true. And I, I think Azar's book will land well with, with uh, open-minded progressives and with people who long for more civil discourse, but I think it might uh, unfortunately miss the people who need it more because honestly, I think we have a lot of people in this country who just don't read and certainly not the kinds of authors as our highlights in the book, you know, James Baldwin, Salman Rushdie, Margaret Atwood, Tanahisi Coates. That said, uh, for, for all the listeners out there, you know, I think we'd all do well to add every single author that Azar writes about, you know, and add them to our reading list. Um, and I hope the book will provoke dialogue and support the loosening of some of our deepest tensions and open up conversations. I believe that literature has the power to do just that. Yeah, me too. And um, the book, it did inspire me in the sense that it made me think about the times in my past when I have read Dangerously and how that nourished me. Uh, and it made me desire to read more Dangerously again. Uh, I've been talking about how I'm meandering my way through Anna Karenina for the past four months. And it's really nice to be with Tolstoy again. But now after having read uh, this book, Read Dangerously, I have decided that the next book on my free time reading list is going to be Tanahisi's 
between the world and me, which I have not read. Uh, and so her book really does serve as that wish list of sorts. Uh, so let's hear from Azar herself, super eager to hear about her journey with this new book and about reading and the power of subversive literature to carry us through, um, you know, especially in what are these very troubling times. So we will be back in a quick minute with a little musical interlude, which is when you can take a little time to remember to breathe. Welcome back, everyone. We're so pleased to have with us Azar Nafisi, who is an Iranian writer and professor of English literature. She won a fellowship from Oxford and taught English literature at the University of Tehran, the Free Islamic University, and Alameh University in Iran. She is the author of several books, including the New York Times bestselling Reading Lolita in Tehran, which is one of my all-time favorites, The Republic of Imagination. And she is joining us today to talk about a lot of things, among them her newest book, Read Dangerously. Welcome, Azar. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're thrilled. And this new book that you've written is a series of letters to your father. Uh, and you write about how it began to take shape in your intro, that you sort of realized you were formulating a book over time as you were writing letters to your father, who passed away in 2004. And so I'd love for you to share with us about what it's like to write a book like this that's so intimate and also so universal. And I also wanted to ask you about whether James Baldwin and Tanahisi Coates, both of who you write about, but also they both wrote books that are in letter form um, and whether either of them were inspirations. Definitely. James Baldwin has been one of my inspirations for a long time now. Uh, I ended Republic of Imagination with Baldwin. Uh, the epilogue was Baldwin. Mm -hmm. And uh, I felt that there were so many conversations that I ne still needed to have with him. So he sort of became an inspiration for this book. From the very start, I knew I wanted to have Baldwin uh, in my new book. And uh, as you say, uh, the reasons that this book was shaped through my... Um, sense of desperation. You talk about it being intimate. Well, it went very deep. Mm. Um, you know, when you're a migrant, when you're an immigrant, um, one of the things that happens to you is that you become sensitized to things that ha are happening in your new home. You don't want the reasons you left in your old home now happen uh, in your new place. And for a long time, as um, early as uh, when I was writing uh, Republic of Imagination, I was worried at the direction this country was going. Every time uh, you want to know whether um, uh, a mindset is uh, totalitarian, you remember that they attack, their first targets become women, minorities and culture. That happened in the Islamic Republic of Iran. The first laws they uh, annulled were the laws that were supporting women. And that is what is happening in this country today. I'm not saying that America is the, 
the Islamic Republic of Iran, we have still free speech. You and I are talking about anything that we want to, and um, we can write about anything that we want to, but there are many, many restrictions that remind me of a totalitarian mindset, and that was one reason I wanted to write this book. That's so interesting, especially, you know, your take and your sensitivity to that totalitarian movement in a country. And reading Lolita in Tehran was one of those, um, well, it was a mega best-selling book, but it, but it was kind of beyond that because it really has such power to change a person's life. And I'm curious, how, how did the success of that book impact how you think about a literature's potential or possibility to influence and to affect change and, and even to save lives in a, in a climate like we're living in now? Well, you know, I really, really did not think that reading Lolita will sell more than one or 2,000 copies. I mean, I would tell my uh, editor that this book is not going to sell. My friends were telling me, uh, you're writing about Iran and we're in a war with Iraq. Uh, You're writing about these writers who are all dead and done with, you know. And uh, I wrote it because I had to. That is the whole idea behind writing. It's like falling in love. You just have to. And um, reading Lolita taught me what amazing connections books make for you. I felt frustrated because I could not, uh, because of the way uh, Iran was uh, mirrored in the media over here and, and the way the politicians talked about it. It was as if the whole of Iran with its ancient uh, history and uh, its rich culture uh, was condensed into the Islamic Republic's view of Islam and of Iran. And I wanted people to know that there was another way of looking at Iran. And there were people living there and resisting uh, the Islamic Republic um, through preserving their individuality and their identity. And um, so the fact that reading Dolita connected to so many different uh, strata of readers uh, uh, was very, very encouraging. Uh, I couldn't believe it. And by the way, I express my concern about this country in the last chapter of reading Lolita in Tehran, where quoting Saul Bellow, I talk about those who survived the ordeal of Holocaust, how will they survive the ordeal of freedom? Because I have, I felt that we are forgetting that freedom is an ordeal and it needs to be guarded and preserved and it needs to be nourished and nurtured every single day of our lives. Hmm. So interesting, yeah, because you're sounding the alarm in some ways and very prescient indeed. Um, I mean, this new book is so for our times. In in the introduction, you write this section that says, books have a rare power to generate empathy, to connect people on a level of humanity rather than ideology. To many, especially those who live for power, this makes books dangerous. For others, it's what makes them magic. And so you're really asserting in this book that we need better discourse, uh, that we need to learn to know our adversaries. And I agree with this in principle, 
But before you came on, I was sharing with Grant that I can't imagine slogging through some of the books of the most loathsome politicians of our times, you know? Yeah, I know. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about that. You know, it's like, those are people who do think books are dangerous and I think books are magic. So how do you bridge that divide? You know, if some people are really coming at it in bad faith. You know, that is why I kept feeling we need to have a campaign um, around books, especially banned books mm -hmm. uh, from left and right. Uh, we need to have these subversive book groups um, in um, everywhere in, in your podcast um, uh, talking. Uh, so I, I feel that this is so important, especially for the young people, because we are teaching them uh, to ignore what is so central to life itself, and that is ambiguity, paradox, contradictions. All of these we are um, sort of um, putting aside, or silencing, because of the fact that uh, uh, we are too complacent and we don't want to be bothered. We become too ideological. Uh, and, and it's easy to be ideological because you are on the side of those who are wearing the white hats. You are the good ones and others are the bad ones. They're the enemy of the people. And so your fight is very easy. You don't need to ask questions. You don't need to think. Mm. You just attack the enemies of the people. And uh, I find it very difficult in real life, not in my writing, but in real life, to uh, not become polarized myself, to not become extremist myself. It is an almost daily struggle um, when I can't watch the news anymore and I leave the room, you know. Uh, and that is why for me, Writing and reading has been a way of surviving such conditions, um, creating a distance with the reality around me and making me think about it rather than just um, outright condemn and uh, cut all means of communication. It's really interesting because I think part of the purpose of writing is to explore those very words you listed there, ambiguity and paradox and contradictions. Um, and I, I love your idea about a subversive group um, or groups <laughs> across the nation. Um, hope that happens. Um, I'm curious, uh, Azar, of, of all the letters to your father in this book, um, with that in mind, do you, do you have a, a favorite? And if so, why? I, to tell you the truth, I don't have a favorite. Each of them triggered some very deep feeling and emotion in me. And uh, each of, to each of them, I responded differently. With some of them, like James Baldwin, I become very uh, personal, as if I know them, as if I have been talking to them all my life. And that is how I feel with Baldwin. I felt that way with Grossman's um, To the End of the Land. Grossman is so humane when it comes to uh, adversary, insisting upon not dehumanizing our adversary, uh, because dehumanization of others leads to dehumanization of ourselves. And that book uh, had a great impact on me. But then, you know, immediately when I say that to you, I think, oh, God darn it, uh, 
Zora Neale Hurston, their <laughs> eyes, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, I feel very um, promiscuous. I love them all. <laughs> <laughs> That's a beautiful way to put it. Um, and, you know, what you're doing in the book, of course, is advocating for reading, uh, and our world so needs it, especially as we're, we're in this time of book banning and cancel culture, and books invariably are at the center of all of that. You grew up in Iran in a repressive culture. And so you're just talking about this. I mean, really what this is, is like bringing an urgency to your writing and advocacy, sounding the alarm. Can you talk about that urgency? I mean, it's interesting to say that even back when you were writing Lolita and Tehran, you were doing that, right? So I'm curious about this moment because now the U.S. has taken that turn toward authoritarianism. Can, can it get more urgent than the current moment? Uh, it can get, I mean, I feel that uh, it can get even more uh, urgent than the than how we feel now, especially with the midterm elections and then the presidential elections uh, just being both of them uh, sort of round the corner. In reading Lolita, I mentioned again at the last chapter, the Austin chapter, I mentioned that... Um, Bello used to talk about um, how in totalitarian societies like the Soviet Union, uh, Stalin poured down the violence. I mean, you could, there was no ambiguity about what they were doing. They, they would eliminate physically uh, their opponents and people who were different from them. So um, it was easy to um, define totalitarianism. But with democracies, it becomes much more um, complicated. With democracies, uh, uh, we don't put people in jail or uh, torture them or murder them. We don't do these things. What Bello says threatens democracies is our sleeping consciousness and our atrophy of feeling. Hmm. And that is what I want to fight against, that atrophy of feeling. Um, and uh, for me, for example, someone like Trump or the leaders of uh, uh, the extreme right movement, it's not just them who are creating a tragic situation. It is the fact that so many people believe them. It is the fact that so many people follow them. And it is the fact that the rest of us become either too numb to respond or ferocious, as ferocious as our enemies are. That is the dangerous with totalitarianism, that you tend to become totalitarian yourself in your behavior. One might preach democracy, but the test of being democratic is in your action. That is why... For example, cancel culture on the left um, uh, comes from a progressive impulse, but the method they use is not progressive. Mm -hmm. It it is like the method that their uh, opponents use, and and that is where the danger lies. This is also fascinating to me, Azar, um, and thank you for Referring to Bello, uh, just the, that notion of, of sleeping consciousness and atrophy of feeling as a, you know, sort of condition of democracy that allows totalitarianism to rise. And you've used the word ambiguity several times. And I've been 
thinking about that in terms of like just kind of knowing a place and knowing a culture and knowing a country. And I heard you say in another interview that you made a home in England and later in the United States through literature, through the authors that you read. Yeah. And that these books and these authors became your family and your portable home. And I think that's such an interesting way to, to find it, make a home and understand a culture in the way that you've spoken about it. So I was wondering if you can tell us more about that. Yes, you know, um, one of the things that makes me feel, as some people say, blessed uh, is the fact that I had traveled uh, to all these countries um, that I later traveled to, not physically, but in my imagination, through reading the stories. I mean, uh, since I was um, uh, about three and a half years old, every night my father would tell me a story, and he was very democratic in the way he told his stories. One night we would visit our epic poet, Ferdowsi, who lived a thousand years ago. The next night we would fly to France with the little prince, to England with Alice, to Denmark with Little Match Girl, to United States with Charlotte's Web, um, to Italy with Pinocchio. And, and so I felt that very early in life, uh, at the age of 13, when my parents sent me to England to be educated, I realized that everything you call home, your material, physical home, can be taken away from you at the drop of an eyelid. First, it was uh, me being sent to England uh, to live on my own and uh, to be away from everything that I loved. And then later on, when I returned to the country that I loved so much, uh, uh, I felt like an alien because uh, of the totalitarian regime that had come to power. And so I knew that uh, I cannot rely on reality that uh, it can take away ev everything I have, if not through a war and a revolution, through a natural disaster, for example. And so when I went to England, I took with me the best that Iran had to offer, its poetry. I took with me three books of poetry, uh, Rumi, Hafez are classical poets and the feminist uh, uh, poet Furuga Farrokhzad. And I mentioned that I made myself at home through Jane Austen and Auden and uh, Ralph Ellison and uh, Melville and Twain and um, later Baldwin. Now, in this portable world that I have, I feel at home. It is the only home that cannot be taken away from me, that I will always have, no matter where I live. Oh my gosh, I just love how you rattle off all of those authors as are. I mean, you're, you're so well read yourself and Read Dangerously is really about asking questions and questioning. It's a celebration of curiosity and it's a warning. I mean, we're talking about the dangers uh, and the lessons that we can learn from history and some of that history certainly you've lived through. So when you think about what impact this most recent book might have, what's your greatest hope or your greatest aspiration? I hope that we will think more. I mean, we can't think of, just think about these things. We need to have feelings about them as well. But I hope that we will have uh, a national debate around and, and, and reawaken the curiosity that we have lost. 
you know, literature is all about others. We write in order to connect to others. And we read again in order to connect. And uh, being curious takes you out of yourself, out of your skin, and puts you under the skin of others. Now, the one of the most dangerous um, enemies of totalitarianism is fiction. Because you notice that fiction by structure is democratic. A great writer has to give voice to every single character. It is a democracy of voices. Even the villain gets to have a voice. A bad writer is like a dictator. He only imposes his voice upon all others. And rather than allowing us to experience and through our experiences come to a judgment, it has already made its judgments for us. It is full of messages. And um, the only voice we hear is the voice of the writer, not the voice of the characters. Uh, So uh, writing and reading becomes dangerous to a totalitarian mindset for that reason, that they are democratic by nature, and for the fact that literature and art always, always reveal the truth. They are witnesses to history. And they write as witnesses. Baldwin, Atwood, Grossman all call themselves as writers, as witnesses. And uh, truth is dangerous because once you know it, you have to do something about it. You can't remain silent. And truth is dangerous because all totalitarian mindsets, whether they live uh, in Trump's or whether they are um, in the Islamic Republic, all totalitarian mindsets rely on lies. Look at Putin. Lies becomes the foundation upon which totalitarians build their building. So true, Azar. Well, goodness, thank you. I hope this inspires all of our listeners to go out and get read dangerously. I was saying to Grant, you know, it's as much of a um, a, a reading list as it is a powerful book. So, so thank you for writing it. Thanks so much, Azar. This was so inspiring and gives such a greater purpose to reading and writing, which uh, is really um, needed by me, at least. Thank you. Let's hope for those book groups. We will be right back with today's book trend. Well, we have the perfect book trend for Read Dangerously, and that is online book clubs. Uh, During the pandemic grant, online book clubs exploded for obvious reasons. And this is a great and lasting trend, I think, because it's hard for people to find a book club locally a lot uh, that aligns with their interests. And it can be particularly hard for people with busy schedules, you know, who maybe work full time or who are caretaking kids or elderly parents to fit a book club meeting into their schedule. So curious, Grant, have you ever been in a book club yourself? You know, I haven't. I'm, I'm such a very uh, particular reader. Um, <laughs> I, I, I sometimes think it'd be super fun to be more exploratory and random in my reading because of a book club, you know, because of like kind of a rotation of other people's recommendations. But yeah, I'm, I'm just too, <laughs> my, my reading list is so purposeful and attached to what I'm writing that I, that I'm just very selfish about my reading time. Uh, and now I'm a very slow reader too, and very sporadic reader. So uh, maybe someday, because I know, you know, 
how reading in a group, uh, like writing in a group, can help with accountability and creativity and, and exploration. And it's a proven fact that, that reading is a proven uh, stress reducer. It you know, slows down the heart rate and eases tension. And we've talked in previous episodes about how reading can help you escape. Uh, I think there are a lot of different purposes for book clubs and reading. And I think escape is becoming uh, is, is one great one, uh, especially in these times we're living in. So uh, with that said, Brooke, have you been part of a book club yourself? Before James was born, yes. And I met some great and lasting friends that way. But it is really hard for parents to carve out that kind of time. And oftentimes, in my experience, book clubs meet on weeknights. So I love the idea of an online book club. Uh, you know, and certainly there are famous ones that you can kind of be a part of, right? Like Oprah and Reese Witherspoon's and Jenna uh, Bush. But I also am like not drawn to those kinds of book clubs. <laughs> so I, I haven't joined one yet, but maybe I'll be on the lookout for one, especially after our conversation with Azar today. Yeah, one that I encountered through a person I know. She's the founder of uh, the what's it called, the Silent Book Club, and and they they have chapters all across America right now. But basically, and it is it started out for parents. You go to. Um, you just sit silently together and read. It's just a matter of like, um, you know, carving out the time to read and you go there once a week and, and have a glass of wine and read. And uh, I thought that was a fantastic idea. And then I know when you said the, the book clubs were kind of burgeoning in the pandemic times, I know that there have been specific companies formed around book clubs like Fable and, and one is called book club. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of different options out there. And mm -hmm. I'm curious if you have any, any resources, Brooke. The best one I would recommend is uh, bookclubs.com. I do know the, the women who run that. And at the top of the site, they have a menu option that is quite simple. Join a book club. And the options are things like trending, genre-focused, influencer-led. And I think that's pretty cool. People can find book clubs on Facebook. There are groups dedicated to reading and Facebook groups that are online book groups. And Instagram, specifically Bookstagram. I have a friend who joined a reading group because of Bookstagram. Uh, you can type in hashtag book club and see what comes up. So they really are widely available, you know, and I think, as you said, like a fun way to read outside of your normal interests, if that's what appeals to you, uh, you know, or just to find a group that's reading exactly what you want to be reading. Yeah, there's something for everyone out there. And I'll put one more idea in the mix. I love what Azar said about needing to have subversive book groups. I know there are banned book groups. I think uh, the book uh, the Authors Guild or ACLU, one of those uh, groups has one. But, you know, something you know beyond Oprah or Reese or Jenna. And the cool thing about the online space is that we can create that. So if any of our listeners out there are doing an online book club and love it, we'd love to know. We don't often ask for author recommendations, but we always want to hear from you if there's something uh, or someone you wish we'd bring on the show and uh, yeah we will continue doing the show every week and please keep tuning in on your favorite podcasting platform and uh, please keep your mind focused on right-minded stuff keep writing keep reading and we'll see you next week